Father, we pray that you would do your work, send your spirit to work in us, to change us. We pray that we might understand what Jesus was on about. Help us, please, to know you. Amen. Well, in 1933, there was a Frenchman, I mean, Frenchman probably every other year too, but there was a particular Frenchman by the name of Andrew Malraux, and he wrote a book, uh, and pardon my French because I can't pronounce it in French very well, La Condition Humaine, or something like that, uh, La Condition Humaine, if you sit in Westy ways. <laughs> uh, uh, the Human Condition, or as it was released in English, Man's Fate. It's a story of four men who are caught up in socialist insurrections in China. One who's an assassin, who becomes obsessed with killing people and just starts to murder everyone around him. He sees it as his duty and just starts killing people all the time. The second one uh, commits suicide because, uh, yeah, it's a happy story. Uh, the third one, he's executed by the regime uh, as it changes. The fourth one, he's a gambling addict and he is so obsessed and he cannot get this thing out of his life that he even lets his friend be killed because he can't leave the table and leave the gambling behind. Uh, he could have got up, he could have warned his friend about what was about to happen and saved his life, but he can't do it. And he describes his addiction later in the book as suicide without dying. It's a, it's a happy story. <laughs> it's morbid stuff, really. And that's what Andrew Malroe means by la condition humane or the human condition. That is our condition. We are mean to each other, we fight a lot, we destroy ourselves, and then we die. Now, does that sound like what we really are? Is that the human condition? Now, it's interesting, if you went and asked people in the community, are we basically good or are we basically evil? What do you reckon people around Ingleburn and Campbelltown would say, are we like that or you know, are we basically good? What do you reckon? They'd say, we're, we're all right, we're okay, you know, we're pretty good. Uh, that is, there's a persistent, dogged, determined view that we have of ourselves as a race and we have of ourselves as individuals that we are good, at least good enough. And that view of ourselves carries over to our views of God and of heaven, more specifically whether God would want us in his, happen, in his heaven. And if you ask people that, do you think God would want you in his heaven? Uh, people would say, well, yeah, I, I think so. I'm, I'm pretty good. Uh, um, some people are more confident. Absolutely, he'd want me there. Got to be lucky to have me in his home. But if we're basically good at heart, why is it that we find the problems that we find around us? Why do we have this human condition? What is it that makes us want to do evil to each other? And why do we go after rails? Why do we fight amongst ourselves? Even people who love each other can't help but fight and be mean to each other. What? Why do we have to teach our kids not to lie? Why do we have to teach them not to be cruel and to, to hurt each other with their words and their actions? Why is it that our families break down and our community breaks down, that we're living with a 50% divorce rate in this country? Why is it that we need police? Surely if we we're all basically, we could just live happily without it. Anarchy would mean good. Everyone would be happy. Uh, why are there wars? Why are there these problems? And more importantly, how do we fix them? How do we bring about change? What would it take to fix those and every other problem that our world and our people face? And perhaps even more importantly than all those questions, 
Where do we really stand with God? And what would it take to guarantee that we ended up in his heavenly home and not facing eternal condemnation? And would we accept his answer if he gave one? Some deep things to think about on a Sunday morning, aren't they? Jesus had a visitor come one night under the cover of darkness. He was a man of repute, a Pharisee that's a member of one of the strictest and most upright of Jewish sects at the time. And he was also, on top of that, being this moral religious man, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, they, they work for social good and for, for change and things. And on top of that, he was a teacher of Israel. He was a rabbi. He was a scholar. A learner. He's a big guy in the community, an important man, well-respected and learned, a bastion of truth and morality, and Nicodemus was his name. And it may well have been because of his reputation that he came at night secretly to see Jesus because he didn't want to be seen associating with this guy who we saw in chapter 2 had only just arrived on the scene in Jerusalem, the capital city, but already in just a few days that he's been there has caused such a stink and an outrage. He's disrupted the social order, particularly in regard to the religious heart of the nation. In chapter 2, he caused the, the religious wheelers and dealers in the temple a lot of money. When he ran around, he made a whip and he was turning over the money tables and driving their wares, their animals out of the temple and he's causing this stink Uh, and he'd refused to give in to the religious those when they come and said, who gives you the right to do this? On what authority are you doing these things? You're wrecking everything and you haven't got our permission. Who's going to give you permission? God? Where's your proof? Give us a sign and then we'll believe that God sent you. And he refused. Although worse, he he issued what today might have sounded like a terrorist threat against the temple of God there in Jerusalem. Yeah, with his call to tear down the temple and just see whether he could rebuild it in three days. And though it was a veiled reference to his death, but they didn't know that. And yet Jesus did do signs while he was in Jerusalem. In fact, he did lots of them. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2 if you want to come back just a few sentences to the end of the previous chapter. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and they believed in his name. That sounds like a great vote of support for Jesus. The crowds, they could see what he could do, the supernatural powers he exerted. They they thought, this is a man we can get behind. Look at the healings he's doing. Look at the the way he's able to exercise demons and and bring change. And they, they loved him and they followed him. And so while the religious leaders and the government authorities were outraged, the masses were entertained. I'm thinking, it was a hoot. This is great. Which put Nicodemus in a very awkward position. Because, well, he's, a, he's one of the leaders who Jesus has been causing the problem for. His position's under threat. But like the crowds, he's, he's just a little bit impressed by the signs that Jesus has been doing. And whether you call it tact and diplomacy or whether you just call it plain sucking up, Nicodemus comes at night, he finds where Jesus is staying, he comes to him and in hear what he says, verse 2 of chapter 3. He says, Rabbi, you know, he's very respectful. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. 
How do we know that? For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. You know, I've, I've seen what you're doing. I know you're on God's team because look at your amazing powers. But if we've been following along in John's biography, then, then we've heard a warning at the end of chapter 2, which most people skip, which John has prepared us for this very meeting with a man who believes because of the signs. Because Jesus happens to think that belief because of miracles is actually phony belief. Have a look at verse 24 of the previous chapter. You know, many saw the signs and they believed in his name, but Jesus, verse 24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Oh, look at him, he's great. Jesus doesn't trust them. Because he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Funny twist, isn't it, verse 24 and 25? Because as it turns out, Jesus wasn't doing any of these signs, these miracles, to draw big crowds. He wasn't doing it to impress people. In fact, worse than that, he explicitly doesn't trust people who follow him because of miracles. According to Jesus, people who believe just because of magic shows are themselves not to be believed. And then the very next thing that happens is this Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness in secrecy at night. He says, we know you're from God because of the miracles you're doing. You know, it just flows straight on. Jesus won't entrust himself to anyone who believes because of miracles, and lo and behold, here's a man who believes because of the miracles. And so for Jesus, this is a man not to trust. But we also just read that Jesus knows exactly what is in a man. That is, he knows precisely what's going on in the inside. He knows what's in people's heart of hearts, what, what makes them ticks, what they're, what they're really thinking. And he knows because of that precisely what they need to hear and what we need to hear. And Nicodemus is no exception. Jesus knows this man even deeper than he knows himself. And so Jesus goes straight on the offensive. He, he sees through the ingratiation and the niceness of this moral, religious man and he peers right into Nicodemus's very soul. And because he knows what's in a man, he gives him the news that he absolutely needs to hear before he's even had a chance to ask a question. I mean, he's turned up and said, we know you're from God, and then just bam! <laughs> right? Jesus, you haven't even found out why I'm here, what I've come to talk to you about. And he's back down. We know you're from God because of the miracles. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And though Nicodemus did not understand, Jesus is cutting to the chase. You think you know that God's with me because of the signs? You really want to see God and his kingdom, Nicodemus? Well, it's more than getting on the bagwagon of the latest miracle worker. You need something much more fundamental to happen to you. You need to be remade. You need to be born again. In fact, you must be born again. And it completely throws Nicodemus. The whole thing's nonsensical to him. It doesn't make any sense. What do you mean born again? I'm a grown man. I can't, I can't be born again. You know, birthing was a difficult process the first time. I, you know, I don't particularly remember my own birth, but 
Yeah, my mum does, <laughs> especially the nine pounds, ten ounces of it. Yeah, quite, yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of amniotic fluid and other mess. And, and the biggest problem is the especially tight spaces involved. <laughs> right? that, that's what Nicod a man cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. It's absurd, Jesus. What are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. But Jesus won't let him off the hook. And so verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. It's not only you can't see the kingdom, you can't enter the kingdom of God without this rebirth. And it sounds like a very strange explanation. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. But it's actually an allusion back to that Old Testament reading that we had in Ezekiel 36. That's the most prominent place in the Old Testament where this is spoken about. For the Old Testament prophets, and Ezekiel in particular, promised a time when God would come and he would remake people. He would take out their heart and he would put in a new heart. And he describes it in Ezekiel as, as sprinkling them with clean water. They'd be washed and the way it was is not with real water, but with the Spirit coming, the Spirit of God who would come and remake and rebuild lives. And, and what would happen would you be forgiven of your sins and there'd be a fresh start with God. And so that's what he means. It's an illusion. We'll be clean of our sins and sprinkled by pure water because we'll have the Spirit come into our lives that's what Jesus means by being washed, you know, born of water and of spirit. And Jesus is alluding to that. But Nicodemus, though he's a rabbi, a Pharisee, a teacher of Israel, expert in the Old Testament, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get that that's what the Old Testament had been saying all along. Well, Jesus pushes on and he's going to let... Nicodemus know a few home truths about this spiritual rebirth, what it's going to mean to be born again. He tells Nicodemus the source of this spiritual birth. 3 verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Yeah, I'm not talking about getting into your mother's womb again. You know, that was your first birth. That, that came in the normal way by mums and dads doing what mums and dads do. But this rebirth comes from the spirit of God coming into your life. It's a birth from above, which is spiritual in its character and dimension. And he says you can't make it happen. The Spirit gives this birth to whomever he chooses when he's good and ready to do it. That is, God is sovereign in his choice of who he's going to give this rebirth to. I mean, you didn't choose to be born the first time, did you? Anyone here have a say in their existence? Um, if you did, I think you need some help. <laughs> Uh, or you were involved in a time travel loop like Terminator. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you just got to go back and watch that. Anyway, uh, you can't make it happen. You don't have any choice in the second birth really either. It's like the wind. He says you can't, you can't make the wind blow this way or that way. It just does what it wants to do and, and you can see its effects though. And so it is with this spiritual rebirth. The third thing he says is, is it's dramatic, it's drastic. 
And Jesus is not advocating a self-improvement course. You know, Nicodemus, if you just do these five steps, everything will be better. You know, you'll see the kingdom of God. You know, if you just start thinking more positively about yourself or have a makeover. You know, he's not talking about relaunching your career like a headline from a couple of years ago. Delta, born again in L.A. Did she become a Christian that day? No. It was a story about, uh, not about God, but about her new video clip in which she changes outfit not once or twice, but five times as she's swimming in the water. And she's born again. Well, she's got a new album out. <laughs> but Jesus isn't talking about that kind of thing. He's not talking about minor He's not talking about some new landscaping in your life or some new manscaping, uh, which is probably what I need. But <laughs> he's saying you've got to start again. You've got to be remade, reborn. And finally he tells that the necessity of this spiritual rebirth, he says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You must be. You have to. It's essential. This birth must take place. It must. It's not an option. If you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, it is essential. And it's essential no matter who you are or what background you come for. Remember who Jesus is talking to. This is not some down and out, lazy, good-for-nothing loser. He's not an abuser. He's not a drunk. He's not... He's not someone who's on the fringes. He's talking not to some famous sinner. He's talking to a man who is a moral and upright you know, kind of guy who, who knows his Bible. He's more pious than we'll ever be. You know, This is a regular church guy who's got it all together and even he must be reborn. But Nicodemus still doesn't get it. He says, how can this be? He says again, verse 9, how is it possible? He's still confused. Now, he's not a stupid man. He's, he's highly intelligent. But Jesus is talking in such radically different concepts to what he was coming here expecting. I mean, he came to congratulate Jesus and, and tell him, yeah, he thought God must be on his side. Instead, he's told he cannot see the kingdom of God without a spiritual rebirth. He came because he's fascinated by this man. He wants to know. Maybe they'd have a cup of coffee and chew the fat. And, but he couldn't have expected the whirlwind he got. And he doesn't get it. How can this be? How is it that someone could be reborn? Well, Jesus will tell him how. How is it that he, in fact, how is it that anyone can be born again? And the answer is given, an answer to which Nicodemus, as the teacher of Israel, should have already known. An answer to which the Old Testament had pointed and signalled and promised. The answer to which all of the law and the prophets testified. And as if to give one quick example to Nicodemus, he picks up this incident from Israel's early history. The time when, when they'd wandered in the desert of Sinai for 40 years. Why had they been wandering there for so long? They'd been rescued from slavery and yet they didn't have the promised land. It's because they'd failed God. Over and over again they'd failed God. They'd failed to obey him. They'd failed to trust him. In fact, worse than that, they resented God. They said, you suck. We don't want you. We'd rather you back to slaves in Egypt. Why did you bring us to this miserable place? It's in the book of Numbers in chapter 21. 
And as a curse, we heard before, God put a curse on them. He sent these venomous snakes among them and they bit the people and many Israelites died. But then they came to Moses and they said, we've sinned. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord for us that he'll take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And, and God was merciful. He was more merciful than they could ever have imagined for. They got more than they asked for. Because not only were the snakes taken away, but they were given something to heal them. Not anti-venom, but, but this statue, the snake on the pole, the bronze snake. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And we find out later in the Old Testament that they've still got this snake on a pole hanging around for years and years later, hundreds of years later, and they're looking to it and living. It's not just the plague at the time. This is amazing. And so there you were as an Israelite dying a slow, horrible, painful death from snakebite. And all you had to do was get your eyes on that snake on the pole and you'd be healed. You would live. And Jesus picks up that very thing as an obvious example of of what Nicodemus, as Israel's teacher, should know. Verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes he may have eternal life. And he's talking about the fact that in a couple of years' time, he is going to go and he'll be lifted up on a pole, this time a Roman cross, and there he would die. But in that remarkable event, what was happening is that it was God who was dying, the one who is from heaven who has come to earth. That's who Jesus is. And he was pouring out his blood and his life for you and for me. The wrath of God poured out on him instead of you, instead of me. And so because of that, you can be forgiven. You can start again. No matter what dark secrets you keep, And we've all got secrets, don't we? I don't know what's in your past. I know for some of you, but even then I don't know the whole thing. No matter what sins you have committed, no matter what lies you are living, no matter what bitterness is going on, no matter what resentments you harbour, it can all be washed away. You can be born again, remade, forgiven. And it only works because Jesus is from heaven, because Jesus came from that other place to earth, because he is of such infinite value as the creator of this universe that his death can pay well for anyone's sins. In fact, that was the promise of the Old Testament, that God himself would come. And he would come... In mercy, to bear our sins. God, standing in your place. God as your substitute. And Nicodemus, I I bet he didn't even know how true his original statement was. I I know you're a man who's come from God. Well, he believes because of the miracles, but but he's right. Jesus is come from God. In fact, he is God. 
And he's come to save all who will trust him. In the desert, you look to the snake and you'd be saved from a painful death and you'd be given a few more short years on this earth to live. You look to the Son of Man when he's lifted up and you won't be healed of, of diseases only to die again in a few years' time. You'll be given eternal life, everlasting life, life with him in glory forever. And in fact, that is where you see the true love of God. I hate it when people say, oh, God love you. Ah, oh, you know the love of God. God, God loves everybody. Right. I, I hate it, not because it's not true, but they just don't get what they're saying. I mean, you want to understand the love of God? Well, this is it, 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. At the very least, that is saying, God's love is not cheap. It's not a, it's not a throwaway line, uh, God love you. God's love is costly. It is so costly that he would give his son to die so that you, so that me and the next door neighbour and your colleague at work and your classmate, in fact the Muslim family across the road from you, the down and out on the street who you walk past and ignore, so the alcoholic abuser, so that the pedophile, so that the murderer, so that the adulterer, so that all who suffer the human condition can live. Even the most moral, upright, religious community guide needs it. And if he needs it, so do you. That is the love of God that he should do that. He goes on in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that he's done for us. He died that we might live. It's the love of God that he would pour out his love for us. But here's a warning and why Jesus is so absolute in his conviction that you must be born again, that it is not optional. 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of God's one and only Son. Hang on, how's, where's the love of God in that? That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? You're going you're gonna to die and go to hell and be condemned? But it's like the snake in the desert. You, you're there dying of snake bite. And God has given you this thing and you just got to look at it and you go, no, 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 I'm going to get better on my own. No, no, I'll be right. And you go, He's given you the way out and you will die without it. Jesus has come to die for you to give you the way out and you will die forever without him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned and whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And that leaves us with a choice, doesn't it? A, a, a decision to make. Will we look to him or not? 
Will we drop all our pretenses? Will we come into love? Will we trust him or not? Will we receive him or not? Will we accept his mercy and forgiveness or not? Will we come out of the dark and into the light and the life that he's offering? And the sad reality is that many don't and many will not. But look at the conclusion of the section, verse 19. This is summing all this up. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. That's wonderful. It's come to shine his light into our lives. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I don't think it's any accident that Nicodemus came at night. I mean, he happened to come at night, but it's so symbolic of what's going on and why he cannot understand. He doesn't want to come to the light. Why is it that the vast majority of our community won't accept Jesus Christ and become his followers? Why is it if this is the love of God poured out on our world that people will refuse him and not listen? Let me be brutally honest with you for a moment. Our society with all this confusion about Christianity and its hatred of Christians and churches pretends that the issues it has are academic ones, that it's dumb to be a Christian. There's not enough proof. There's not enough evidence. It is not true. There is more than ample evidence for the reliability of the scriptures, for the historicity of Jesus, for his death and for his resurrection. And if you really think it's academic, we can sit down and we can, I can show you. But for the majority, it's not academic problems at all. We've got hard hearts. We just don't want to change. We don't want to be found out with, by God. We want to go on living the life that we've become accustomed to with us in charge. We like the darkness Oh, we like to pretend to everyone around that we're okay. We like to pretend to God that we're okay. And we like to pretend even to ourselves that we're okay, that we're good enough and we don't need him to save us. And you know what? It is so stupid. It is so stupid because he knows us already. He knows us even better than we know ourselves. There is no hiding from him. If that's the case, why wouldn't you come out of the darkness and come into the light? And look at the promise of verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the life, the light. You know, it doesn't matter about the embarrassment. It doesn't matter what's there in the past. Come to the light so that what may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God, that God can change anyone. Come into the light. Come to him. Jesus is not offering band-aid solutions to the problems of this world, to the human condition. Now, there's nothing wrong with band-aids. Our family supports Johnson & Johnson probably more than any other family. We've been doing it for several years now. If you ever see Evelyn, you know, at any one time, she's probably got about six band-aids on her. Um, we should have shares in the company. We've got so many band-aids on, on real cuts and imaginary ones <laughs> on all our children. But ultimately the problem is considerably deeper than any band-aid can ever solve. And the way that the world tries to deal with the problems that it has, they're all band-aid solutions. Okay, what is going to make our society better? What is going to change the way people treat each other? I'll tell you what it's going to be. Education. 
if we just make people smart, if they just learn about the world and how to love people, then everything will be better. Okay. All right, we have better education than we've ever had. You know, we've got free education, substantially, kind of thing. Are the children today any better than they were 100 years ago? They're smarter, but they're just smarter sinners. Has it fixed anything? Well, I'm glad for education. I want education. I love education, but, but it doesn't fix this problem. Oh, we just need some more police. That's all we need. Yeah, if there was more control out there and more, you know, more government control, intervention and things, everyone would love each other. We'd all be good, wouldn't it? We'd have no more problems. No one would feel bad about themselves. No one would commit suicide. No one would bash their wives or drink or into oblivion or having. That's not going to solve anything. It may cut down the crime rate temporarily, but but it's a band-aid solution. Counselling, well, people just feel bad about themselves and things. I'm glad for counsellors. Counsellors are very, very helpful, especially in working through what the issues are and self-discovery and all those kind of things, but, but it's a band-aid solution. What you need is a new life. We need the real deal. We need the new birth. And he gives it to all who will look to him. And And... You've probably known people who've, cha- who've had that change. He can change the drug addict and the alcoholic. Walked in the church, not prepared for this, but Tanya Murphy, oh, I think she's in the crush, is she? Came up to me and said, you know what today is? It's my fifth birthday. I became a Christian five years ago here. And the change, you know? The bad men, the alcohol, she'll tell you yourself, uh, all the stuff, radical change. He can change the liar. He can change the cheat. He can change the self-centred and those governed by temper and greed and lust. He can change the religiously upright. He can change each and every one of us totally and effectively, remaking them, giving them new birth into a living hope kept in heaven. In fact, that's what he's in the business of doing. In fact, that's what he must do in you if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Has he changed you? Has he given you the new birth? Have you been remade by Jesus who died for you? He says a bit weird, doesn't talk about being born again. I mean, we know the born again Christians, (laughs) the weird loonies out there kind of thing. But the real Christian is one who's born again because they have come to Jesus and they know him and he's given them new life. Let me just finish with a quick epilogue. What happened to Nicodemus after this encounter with Jesus? Yeah, most of the people you meet in the Gospels that Jesus comes across, you never hear from them again. Nicodemus is a bit of an exception. Because by chapter 7 we read about his weak but nevertheless vocal attempt to protect Jesus from harm from his buddies. He says, oh, you guys are against him, but we should give him a fair hearing. Yeah, everyone deserves a fair trial, don't they? And they're like, are you one of his followers? He's like, oh, no, no, not me. (laughs) Um, I don't know what to say. (laughs) But then by chapter 19 and verse 38 and 39, Jesus has just died on the cross. He's been lifted up on the pole. And he has given his life. 
And all those who had loudly proclaimed their allegiance to Jesus Christ have fled away, and though there was really nothing in it for him, Nicodemus came with Joseph of Arimathea, and the two of them got Jesus' body down from the cross. And they put him in a tomb, even though there was really no need for it because he's going to come back a couple of days later. But they went through the burial procedure and they dressed his body and and Nicodemus, of all people, was there. He was the one. It might have taken some time, but I'm convinced that someday we'll see Nicodemus in heaven, that he was, in fact, born again. Remade. That he came out of the darkness. That he turned his back on the people who hated Jesus and who would. And God remade him. He was reborn. Has he done the same to you? Have you been born again? Father. We know that what we need is not a makeover, but a complete fresh life, a new start. We thank you that you've given that to so many people at our church and thank you for that blessing and the changes. Thank you for Tanya and what you've done in her life. But Father, we know that there are others who still need this new birth, who've been resisting, who won't come to the light. Father, please break through the darkness. Send your spirit to do your work, to convict them of their sin and bring them to Jesus. We pray if there are questions still to be answered, that they will be answered for them. If there are doubts that they have, that they will be overcome. But if, as Jesus has said, it's all about the resistance of hard hearts, we pray that you will break those hard hearts and they would come to the truth and they would live. We pray for those who've come to the different events we've had already and those who are coming, been invited, we pray that they would come, that they would hear the gospel and that you would be pleased to give them new birth. Help us to be diligent and faithful in sharing the gospel. Help us to love those around us and even those strangers. We pray, please, that you would have mercy. Have mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.